Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the BICOM podcast. I'm Roni Gazit, one of the BICOM team members. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Khaled El-Gindi. Thank you so much for, for your time, Khaled. Thanks for having me. So as a brief introduction, Khaled is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, where he also directs MEI's program on Palestine and Israeli-Palestinian affairs. He's the author of a recently published book, Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. He previously served as a fellow in the foreign policy program at the Brookings wow. Institution from 2010 through 2018. And prior to arriving at Brookings, he served as an advisor to the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah on permanent status negotiations with Israel from 2004 to 2009. And he was a key participant in the Annapolis negotiations of 2007 to 2008. So I really can't think of a more fitting guest for the topic we're going to dive into today. And that is the Palestinian elections or the Palestinian elections that weren't. So Khaled, you and I are speaking on Wednesday, May 5th, uh, just under, uh, just a bit less than a week after Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas announced that the May 22nd elections for the Palestinian Legislative Council would be postponed. Those elections were set to be the first elections the PA held since 2006. Now, President Abbas's justification for pushing off the election was the inability of Palestinians to vote in Jerusalem. But others have pointed to the weakness of Fatah, his party, and the fear of a strong showing by Hamas in these elections. So Khaled, can you take us through how you read Abbas's decision and these two sort of factors that have been given as the reason for the postponement? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, first, I mean, there's no question that Jerusalem is a central issue for Palestinians uh, politically in terms of uh, their national identity. And so no, no Palestinian wants to go, wants to exclude Jerusalem uh, because of, you know, obviously the symbolism that that, that, that would suggest that, that they are somehow abandoning uh, Jerusalem as a future capital, which, uh, which is not something I think most Palestinians are prepared to do. Uh, that said, though, I think Jerusalem was mostly a pretext. Um, uh, it was not the primary reason that these elections were indefinitely put off. That reason was clearly the, the dysfunction that is going on inside uh, Mahmoud Abbas's own party, Fatah, uh, which is divided. There were at least three different lists uh, that were uh, that were um, originated with Fatah members, um, including the official list, but also rival lists uh, from uh, from people who have basically fallen out with uh, with Abbas's uh, leadership, um, and so that clearly threatened to diminish uh, Fatah showing, particularly with regard to Hamas. Um, and so, even though it, Hamas is never going to get uh, an outright majority simply doing better than, than the official Fatah list would have been a blow to, uh, to Abbas's leadership. Um, but more importantly, I think, you know, one of the, the, the fact that Jerusalem was used as a pretext um, is, I, I think, a real strategic 
error on the part of uh, Abbas. It's a it's a real miscalculation um, because he's basically you know he's being criticized for essentially handing over uh, internal Palestinian decision making to Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, there are alternate uh, modalities for for uh, Palestinians to vote in Jerusalem. There are ways to include. Uh, Jerusalemites, for example, on you know on the national lists, uh, you could you could have uh, Jerusalemites. There are ways for Palestinians in Jerusalem to vote um, that were floated but uh, not not accepted. And so um, he made a strategic error in in sort of handing Israel the keys to any future Palestinian election because essentially um, we know, uh, especially with the right wing Israeli government. <clears throat> they're never going to allow Palestinians to vote in Jerusalem. That's a very overtly political act that directly challenges their claim to a exclusive uh, control over, over Jerusalem. Um, and so he's basically painted himself into a corner where he can't hold elections in the future because he's used uh, this Jerusalem uh, issue as, uh, as the reason. Uh, and, and, you know, how is he going to be able to climb down from, from that? So perhaps picking up on, on one of the points that you mentioned uh, in terms of Fatah facing in many ways an uphill battle in this election because of Hamas and, as you discussed, the, the competing lists. Um, and we know that it wasn't just Hamas that was upset with the decision to postpone the elections. Um, we saw two, at least, you know, two former Fatah officials, Mohammed Dahlan and Nasser Al-Kidwa, uh, who were running on independent slates, former Fatah members, also criticize the postponement of these elections. So it, looking at these two figures, can you walk us through what, what role you see them playing in Palestinian politics in the short term and the long term? Yeah, I think it's important to point out, first of all, that it wasn't just uh, Dahlan and Al-Qudwa who criticized Mm -hmm. it, I mean, or even Hamas. Uh, Virtually all of the 36 electoral lists, um, in addition to civil society leaders and others, have condemned the decision to cancel the elections. Uh, It was a unilateral decision made by uh, Abbas, uh, and uh, people are quite angry at not having the ability to participate in any kind of political decision-making process or even to have politics. Uh, If you don't have a parliament, you don't have uh, a functioning PLO, what forum is there for Palestinians to have politics? There, There isn't one. And, and so people had gotten used to the idea, people had warmed up to the idea, there was a lot of momentum building up uh, and to have the rug pulled out from underneath them at the last moment is uh, demoralizing for, uh, for a lot of Palestinians. Um, that said, on, uh, in terms of what this means, um, it obviously doesn't bode well for Abbas's leadership. Um, it, it, it's, it's bad on two fronts. The first is that he, there's clearly opposition to, uh, to his style of leadership within the ranks of his own party. Um, and that has a lot to do with his increasingly authoritarian style, his unilateral decision-making, 
Um, and so we are seeing more and more people express, uh, you know, more people within his own party express dissatisfaction with, with his leadership. Um, so that's problematic. But what is also problematic is that Abbas didn't foresee this when he uh, kind of hurriedly called for elections. Um, he assumed that simply by getting Hamas to agree um, and whatever uh, arrangement they would have uh, with Hamas to basically more or less share power in one form or another, um, he assumed that he'd be fine. Um, the fact that he didn't anticipate these divisions in his own party really underscores just how insulated uh, his leadership is and, and out of touch with uh, other segments of, of what is supposed to be his political base. And specifically on, on the two individuals, Mohammed Dahlan and Nasser al-Kidwa, could you talk about uh, what we might expect to see from them and their role in, in Palestinian politics down the line? Well, it's very hard to say. I, I think um, there's a bit of a parallel between Mahmoud Abbas and Benjamin Netanyahu in terms of the role that they are currently playing in their domestic politics. Uh, they are polarizing figures. Um, and uh, were it not for both of these two men, there would be much more consensus uh, and, and a coalition. You know, if Netanyahu were not in the picture, we would see a you know, pretty easy right-wing coalition emerging with a solid majority. If Mahmoud Abbas were not in the picture, we would likely see Fatah coalescing um, uh, around, you know, being much more uh, unified um, or at least having an internal debate um, and power struggle over its future leadership. Uh, but right now Abbas is himself uh, the biggest obstacle to reforming or unifying Fatah. Um, so in the future, I would imagine in a post-Mahmoud Abbas world, uh, both Nasr al-Qudwa and uh, even Mohammed Dahlan uh, will be reintegrated into a Fatah uh, movement in one form or another. But that's just not possible while Abbas is uh, in the picture. As we know, it wasn't just the Palestinian Legislative Council elections that, that were postponed. It was also the presidential elections and a vote on the PLO National Council. And you kind of touched on, you know, Abbas being very insulated, uh, but could you perhaps expand a bit more on, on where this indefinite postponing of the elections leaves Palestinian politics and its leadership? Yeah, I'm afraid, you know, it doesn't leave them with much, um, you know, for now, at least, I think it means that uh, the current paralysis that exists both within the PA and the PLO um, is going to continue. Uh, these institutions are stagnant and, and have been for a long time, the PLO longer than the PA, uh, but the PA now is kind of following in the footsteps of, of the PLO and um, is, uh, is really uh, an institution that is very much uh, in decline, particularly without any um, renewed legitimacy, without any checks and balances, without any 
um, ability to uh, to oversee the executive and you know all of the normal functions of what you know having a parliament does. Mm -hmm. um, and so this stagnation is gonna is gonna go on, but no one knows really for for how long. Uh, the momentum and the excitement that was created, even about what everybody understood to be a very very flawed electoral process. Um, it was clear there was an attempt to rig it by President Abbas, um, or at least stack the deck. Um, um, but even with the knowledge of that, most Palestinians understood that they still were, they were so thirsty and yearning for the chance um, to, to have a revival of some sort of political life um, that, that they were eager, eager to, to participate. That's, that genie is out of the bottle and it's going to be hard to put it back. Um, people, you know, it, it, the fact that they've had several weeks, they had 36 different electoral lists that had uh, signed up, almost 1,400 candidates. People paid quite a large sum uh, to register these lists. Um, in some cases, people had to resign from their jobs. Uh, and to have all of that for nothing, obviously, is going to leave people very, very frustrated. And so the question now is, can Abbas uh, find some outlet for that anger that is also meaningful, that allows Palestinians to, to have a say in their, in their political process? Mm -hmm. um, that could be in some sort of revival of the PLO, uh, which, you know, as you said, the PNC, which is the kind of parliament in exile for the, the PLO, uh, was also slated to have elections. But the PNC has never been elected, uh, and the PLO functioned more or less on a quota system and on the basis of broad consensus. And so that would be one way, um, short of, of rescheduling elections, that Palestinians could reactivate a dying political institution and revive political life on some level. But we don't see any movement towards that. Um, but uh, I think there are uh, the calls for for rescheduling elections um, are only going to grow louder, uh, mm -hmm. both in the international community and especially among Palestinians. Specifically touching on, on Abbas again, do you think that this in a way that we haven't seen previously signals the beginning of the end for for him? And do you think that that we might be seeing um, a post-Abbas Palestinian arena and Palestinian leadership become more prominent in terms of discussions among leaders in, in that area? I mean, yes and no. I, I think, I mean, there's no question that Mahmoud Abbas did himself considerable damage domestically uh, and internationally. His credibility has been shot. His popularity was already quite low even before these elections. Um, and that's one of the reasons why he called them off, because he had uh, people who were planning to run against him in, presidential, in a presidential race. And there was no question that he was going to lose in any seriously contested presidential race. Uh, but by canceling uh, the elections, people see through it, um, people take it for what it is. Um, is, it, is it the beginning of the end? It's, it's a hard question, and I don't mean to be philosophical about this, but Mahmoud, Mahmoud Abbas's 
star has been falling from the moment it began. Um, I mean, he has been in decline almost from the minute he took office. Uh, mm -hmm. One setback after another, a lot of it uh, beyond his control, um, uh, like the Gaza Wars, for example. But uh, he has, uh, I think most of the damage in the last decade in particular has been self-inflicted. Um, his authoritarian style, his inability to um, accept any type of dissent within the ranks of Fatah, much less, um, you know, have a, a broader uh, kind of leadership. So in that sense, Abbas is kind of like the, the peace process, you know, it's it, his leadership has been dying a slow death anyway. Um, and so what is the moment at which point we say it's dead? Uh, this is the point of no return. I think, you know, it's debatable, um, but, you know, it's likely that he will remain in office for the remainder of his life. Um, but I think this is kind of the last act. This is how he is going to define uh, his legacy, uh, which could have been, you know, one of overseeing a political revival and rejuvenation of these institutions and maybe even a peaceful transition had he been willing to step aside. But now he sealed his fate as, uh, as the one who kept Palestinians divided and prevented them from, uh, from, from internally reviving their, their political institutions. Do you think that these elections will ever take place or that it might take some significant event like the death of Abbas to facilitate uh, an election happening? I mean, well, that's the problem. I think by the fact that he pinned, uh, he went out of his way to pin the cancellation of these elections on the issue of Jerusalem, basically painted himself into a corner. And so now he mm -hmm. can't, he's not in a position to reschedule elections because the same conditions still apply. Israel's still not going to let people vote. So under what conditions, um, how is he gonna climb down from that limb? Um, it is, it's not clear. And so, you know, he very much miscalculated. Um, he just simply didn't think through uh, when he decreed the elections, he didn't th think through the repercussions of holding them, uh, particularly with regard to the state of his own party. And then when he canceled them, um, he didn't think through the, the implications of what that would mean and the mm -hmm. fallout uh, from that. So um, it is it is possible. I think it, it's it's theoretically possible that there would be enough political pressure um, and public outcry uh, that he will find some way to uh, to reschedule elections, but it's very hard to imagine that he would still be a part of that process. Uh, I think yeah. if that were to happen, it would most likely be as his exit uh, from the mm -hmm. scene rather than um, you know, continuing to oversee it. So now zooming out a little bit beyond just the Israeli-Palestinian arena that we were touching on, there, there were reports that Jordan and Egypt were also worried about these elections taking place, primarily due to what we, we had discussed, which was Hamas per, you know, doing well. 
So my question to you is to what extent do you believe that to be the case? And then if you could also perhaps touch on the broader dynamic between the Palestinian Authority and the Arab world at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true. I think the Egyptians and the Jordanians were not terribly excited about um, the prospect of, uh, of elections, um, but they weren't alone. I, I think many in the West and especially in Washington were also not very enthusiastic about Palestinians holding elections, not just because of the possibility of Hamas doing well, um, I think everyone understood Hamas wasn't going to win an outright uh, majority, but uh, because anything that could disrupt the status quo in ways that are unpredictable are undesirable, particularly for the Biden administration. Um, uh, because in that case, it would sort of force them to deal with an issue that is simply not a priority, um, that they would like to sort of you know, quietly fade away um, and just put it up on a shelf. And mixing up the pot with elections threatened that. And, and I think it's one reason why we saw this very nonchalant attitude from the United States, like, sure, whatever, elections, you want to have it, fine. Mm -hmm. but if you want to cancel them, also fine. Uh, as far as the PA's relationship with the Arab world, uh, again, I think this is a reflection on, on Mahmoud Abbas's leadership. Uh, the, the PA is quite isolated in the Arab world in general, um, even before the normalization agreements that, um, you know, in response to, they ended up uh, withdrawing their you know, Palestinian ambassadors from both the UAE and Bahrain, um, only to bring them back a, a couple months later. Mm -hmm. But uh, in general, Mahmoud Abbas has not been, uh, he's not done a a good job of, of playing uh, Arab politics uh, the way Yasser Arafat did, where he was quite good at um, speaking to Arab public opinion and in a way leveraging the Palestinian issue and what it meant symbolically for so many people across the Arab world to his advantage with, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Arab leaders. Um, Mahmoud Abbas has generally dropped the ball in terms of Arab diplomacy, in terms of international diplomacy. And, uh, you know, again, I think it's just a reflection of, of poor leadership uh, and the absence of any, anything that could resemble a strategic plan. And perhaps we can we can end with this with this question. As I mentioned in, in the introduction, you are the author of a book called Blind Spot America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. And you briefly touched on the Biden administration um, as, as you were just um, going, as you were just speaking, but could you perhaps go into a little more depth about, about what we have seen um, from the first couple months of the Biden administration and its approach to the Palestinians, then perhaps also looking to the future of the next couple months and the next couple years of the Biden administration, what we might expect from their approach to the Palestinians. Yeah, I mean, I would say, uh, first of all, obviously it's not a priority with regard to domestic priorities, uh, but even in uh, Biden's foreign policy agenda, it's mm -hmm. pretty low down on the list. Um, and, 
you know, the administration's been clear even since the campaign that there are um, that they're not willing to expend a whole lot of political capital on this issue. Uh, their goal is a very modest one, and that is to undo some, but not all, of the, the worst aspects of the Trump legacy, um, reinstating aid, uh, albeit at a more modest level, um, establishing a minimally bilateral relationship with the Palestinians, um, you know, aid to UNRWA, those sorts of things uh, that they've done, uh, but they're not prepared to do much more than what is minimally required uh, to be seen as 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 credible or that will, um, you know, they're certainly not really interested in generating any kind of diplomatic process or returning to negotiations or or even in creating the conditions for for uh, fruitful diplomacy. Um, they've been silent, for example, on Israeli settlements, mm -hmm. um, on um, evictions like the one that is about to happen in Sheikh Jarrah in, in East Jerusalem, where you know, uh, some 18 families, uh, almost 100 people are, are, are going to be removed from their homes in order to hand their homes over to settlers quite directly. Um, and, and the kind of extremist violence that we've seen from Kahanists, from supremacist groups, from Lahava, uh, we've seen a very kind of demure, low-key reaction from the administration. Um, they just want it to go away. You know, they don't want to deal with this issue. Um, and I think for as long as they can get away with ignoring it, they will. The problem, of course, is that the issue has a way of imposing itself. Uh, on uh, on the United States and on the international community, especially when things are are left untended. Um, if you leave the parties to themselves, especially given, you know, Israel is becoming more and more right wing. Um, you have extremists, you have Kahanists in the Knesset um, who are inciting violence on the streets. You've got settlers actively you know, taking over people's homes. Um, you have you know burning crops in the in the West Bank, so all of these provocations um, just are you know make an explosion more likely. At which point, I think the administration is going to have to engage with it. Um, they they will only be able to ignore it for so long, um, and then the conditions are are ripe for um, you know for some sort of explosion down the road. Any any positive words you, you'd like to leave us with? <laughs> I know it's always good manners to try and end on a on a positive note. I honestly Sometimes cannot you see. Yeah, I, I cannot see um, any bright spot on the horizon. Uh, I, I see Israeli politics becoming more extreme, and I see Palestinian politics becoming more fragmented, mm -hmm. and I see American. Um, um, the American role becoming more dis disconnected from yeah. at least the the diplomatic side. Obviously, they're going to continue uh, to engage with Israel, um, and that special relationship is not going to suffer at all. But vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, um, that's where they're not prepared to uh, to pay any um, any sort of political cost. Yeah. So well I'm sorry, I don't have more positive uh, outlook for you.
that's quite all right. Hopefully the next time we talk, it'll be under better circumstances, but knowing this region, I, I wouldn't hold my breath. Uh, so with that, Khaled, thank you so much for your insight, for your time. Uh, it was I learned a great deal. I'm sure our listeners will benefit from, from this discussion. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.